Hey guys, welcome back. We're here with another book review. Today we have The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. This is a book that has been highly, highly recommended and upon reading it, I realized why that was the case. I think it puts money in such simple perspective and the whole way we as human beings deal with money so simply, so beautifully that it's easy for everybody to understand whereas at the same time, it's stuff that makes sense. It's stuff that's practical. It's stuff that we can implement in our everyday lives. So yeah, let's talk about money. Welcome to the Thought Bistro podcast with Akhil and Vishrut. Here we bring you the weekly news, book reviews and world views from a different lens. Our mission is to provide a platform to explore different ideas and different perspectives and allow you, our listeners, to develop a deeper understanding. Very rarely do you come by new books and new books that are this well-written and that capture the essence of something as simple or as complex as money can be. So this book is written by Morgan Housel. I came across this when one of my absolutely non-finance friends was talking about it. He was talking about money and it was just so cohesive. His experience with the book and his way of thought that I was like, you know, I got to read this. So yes, let's dive straight into the book. I think the most amazing thing about this book is that it doesn't try to be a novel. It doesn't try to be something that is a very long, winding read. It keeps its things very short. It keeps all the things it's trying to say very precise, very straight to the point. It's not trying to give you too many examples, but at the same time, it gives you enough to make its point. So the way this book works is it's divided into 20 chapters and each chapter talks about a different facet of money. Morgan Housel goes about giving a story in each chapter which furthers his point and which sort of drives home the point that he's trying to make. The first point that he tries to make is that everyone's mindset about money is built on different stories and is built on different experiences. For example, if somebody you come across who set up their business on debt and by taking lots of debt and their business did well and they're able to generate massive amounts of wealth, then that person will always recommend, you know, why don't you take debt? Why don't you build businesses on debt? An example of such a person would be Robert Kiyosaki and another would be James Cordon. Both of them have built their money on real estate and most of the real estate whenever you watch their YouTube videos or whenever you come across any of their stuff is recommended based on high leverage by real estate on high leverage or by businesses on high leverage right because they might not have faced the challenges that debt brings with it which is bankruptcy on the other hand you come across a businessman whose business fails because of debt they have this fear in them or they have this essence within them that debt may be bad and maybe you should build something on equity and maybe build something with personal capital. An example of that would be Warren Buffett, whose father's business did not do as well as he would have liked. And hence, whenever you look at Buffett's funds, he generally does not like leverage. He does not do shorting of funds or he does not like to buy on margin. He generally just acquires on his own capital. So you can find all of these examples, right? And you would ask the question, what is right and what is wrong? Now, in my opinion, something might be right. In your opinion, something else might be right. So the author likes to introduce by saying that financial outcomes are a soft skill, right? And different people gain this skill with different experiences and each experience has its own story. 
I think he puts it very beautifully at the introduction of the chapter and he says your personal experiences with money maybe make up 0.0000001% of what's happened in the world but maybe make up 80% of how you think the world works he is essentially saying that, that you are a slave of your experiences your thinking your mindset works on the way your experiences have taught you and the way your experiences work so he says that people who were born in 1950s and 1970s have a major major disparity as to how they look at the stock market because for the people who were born in the 50s the stock market during their teens was very very flat it barely gave any returns there was no real motivation for them to invest in the stock market whereas the people who were born in the 1970s experienced great returns from the stock market when they were in their teens and their 20s so the outlook when you speak to someone this is obviously a generalization but when you speak to someone in the US who was born in in the 1950s or born in 1950 more specifically they will have a very different outlook they will probably be very bearish about the stock market they will be like you know probably be very cautious when you're investing in the stock market because it doesn't really give you too much in return whereas someone who was born in 1970 would be gung ho about the stock market and be like yes you should definitely invest because it's a, it's great and it gives you amazing returns nowadays this one thing has been really trending for the past couple of years it's called buy the dip and this buy the dip mentality is that if a stock falls or if the market falls then you buy it because it it's going to recover right and that mentality is essentially built on this timing a lot of people maybe they invested their money you know a major chunk of their money in march 2020 or maybe they invested a chunk of their money in early 2019 both times when the market you know dipped a little bit and when they make those amounts of money then somewhere within their mind all they are hoping for is a market dip so that they can buy so they aim for this timing to buy more stocks and they aim for this timing to buy more market and then if you ask them an opinion about the market they'll be like why don't you wait for a crash and when the crash happens then you can put all your cash in it otherwise you know just hold cash for that time on the other hand if somebody buys at the peak of the market when you know they listen to some they listen to the index fund episode of ours and they buy at the peak of the market and then the market dips now they're going to be thinking oh this person recommended me to buy index funds and i have lost 6% 10% 20% value within 2 months so maybe the whole concept is incorrect and maybe i should go for real estate and said this whole market is rubbish it is gambling right so this is the kind of mentality he talks about so very nicely put sentences it is never as good or as bad as it looks it's always somewhere in the middle right and we like to really emphasize this somewhere in the middle thing in our podcast i think numerous times we talk about somewhere in the middle i think we today started looking at life very black and white it's always either a zero or a one however zeros and ones are only associated with computers we as humans don't have to deal explicitly with zeros and ones we can deal with all that lies in between and that at the end of the day ultimately is life and we have to embrace that gray we have to be able to understand that gray and realize that that gray may not always be in our hands and maybe have a little compassion towards each other and realize that the other person might not be wrong their context might just be different or their 
understanding might just be different and then be able to put our understanding while leaving room for you know the other person's understanding within our own and this is the chapter he calls no one's crazy which is very well put i think because no one's crazy everybody has their own thought process he follows it up with our favorite two words luck and risk and we do not hide away from emphasizing the word risk and the author argues that luck and risk are two sides of the same coin and that people often confuse them with skill and intelligence the very very nice example of bill gates in this chapter in which he talks about this guy bill gates right we all know him as the person who started microsoft but somehow bill gates and his friend ended up in the one school in their whole locality with a computer and no other school had a computer to give you the math of this which is given in the book in 1968 there were roughly 303 million high school age people in the world 18 million of those lived in the united states 270,000 lived in washington state and a little over 100,000 of them lived in seattle only 300 attended lakeside school so think about this you started with 303 million and you ended with 300 So basically, one in one million high school age students in 1968 attended the high school that had the combination of cash and foresight to buy a computer. Bill Gates happened to be one of them. So this does not take away from Bill Gates's intelligence, or it does not take away from his skill, but it does tell you that he did have the access to the tool that was an absolute necessity for what he developed. You know, that puts things in context. So he talks about how luck and risk, you know, they go hand in hand. You may have the most expensive car in the world sitting in your garage but unless you have the key to work that car there's no way you can ever drive it so that one computer at that one school and bill gates being that one kid amongst the astronomical numbers we just gave you who attended that school might have just been that key that helped him start the ignition of the car that was going to be his brain and his journey towards founding a company and a behemoth as i should say as big as microsoft and all the other achievements that he has achieved in his life i'll take you in another direction right all of us have the supercomputer in our pockets at all times which knows everything where we can learn anything and we opt to open facebook twitter instagram and look at memes look at a dog poop on a wall and then walk away laugh at it for 2 minutes scroll down and then laugh at the next thing instead of looking at the absolute galore of information we have so that is where you know the skill and persistence comes in we are very lucky to be living in a time where all of us can have this phone right but how many of us do exploit our intelligence regarding that phone that is the luck and risk factor of it take the risk there's another very very interesting story in the book right and it's in the next chapter it's called never enough there are these bunch of very very rich people in a hall they're having a party and this is one fellow who is not very rich but he's like well to do he's happy and another fellow goes up to him and asks him don't you feel inadequate don't you feel like all of these people have achieved so much and you are here in their company and this person says i have something many of them don't and this guy is confused right the one who asked question and he asks him what is it he says i have enough You've all heard of Bernie Madoff, right? Before he got caught in his entire Ponzi scheme and everything, he was a wildly successful and legitimate businessman. 
he didn't just get up one day and be like, oh yeah, you know what, I'm going to make a Ponzi scheme. He actually had a highly profitable securities firm, which traded in $740 million worth of average daily volume of trades, which was 9% of the New York Stock Exchange's trades that took place in a single day. Just imagine that size and yet... He today is one of the most notorious, if not the most notorious Ponzi schemers out there since probably Charles Ponzi, whose name has coined this phrase Ponzi scheme. Housel says the hardest financial skill is getting the goalpost to stop moving. This is something we've all experienced that, okay, let's get to the first goal and then we'll see what our next goal is. And then the next goal and then the next goal. So you have to understand that there has to be some point in terms of your earnings, in terms of your money, to to get to the point where it says, okay, I have enough. And after a point, it's just all an ego battle. And the point is not to stop driving yourself and the point is not to stop chasing after a dream. But the dream should be not making this much money. That is not the dream. The dream is doing something, right? Money is a means to do something else. And if your quality of life is set at a particular amount of money per year, then you can always restrain your quality of life at that point because you are comfortable and that is enough. And that might be a very high point, but that is enough, right? And post that point, your quality of life doesn't change. Warren Buffett, I I love the fellow, right? And he keeps coming up again and again, but he talks about this. He says, my average lifestyle costs around $80,000 a year. And between you and me, the only difference is I travel first class because it is better for my health. He has a very normal car, a very normal house, eats McDonald's in the morning, drinks two Cokes a day, and he's a happy man. He could live anywhere in the world, and he chooses to live in Omaha, which is, you know, it's nowhere on the map. He actually put the city on the map. Think about it. Such a wealthy man. Think about Steve Jobs, used to wear the same turtleneck every day. Think about Mark Zuckerberg, right? These guys, they have made it. Yes, Bezos is going to Mars. Not all of us need to be Bezos, right? But even Bezos is also a very, very frugal man. If you watch his interviews from the time he was setting up Amazon, he had restricted himself to his Toyota. And he had restricted himself to his own home's living room to distribute his books. Frugality is a very important essence of life because anything over and above is investable money, which can get you there faster, get you to the passive point of life faster, where you can have that enough by itself. So in fact, I think I'm just going to jump a little further in the book just to make this point a little more. Housel talks about getting wealthy versus staying wealthy. And he mentions how in order to feel rich, we all have this phrase that, you know, we want a million dollars. That doesn't mean we want a million dollars in our bank account, but we want to spend a million dollars. The feeling that one gets when spending big amounts of money is the feeling that one associates to being rich. And there, he says, lies the difference between being rich and being wealthy. Being wealthy is the stuff that you don't see. It's the investments. It's the thing that when you're not spending the money, that is what wealth is. Whereas spending just, you know, buying a fancy car or living in a massive house is just being rich and you can earn some money and you can buy a car that is outside your budget. But, you know, say you're earning a nominal amount of income and you go and buy yourself a fancy Porsche which is costing you $10,000 a month and you're spending maybe 60% of your paycheck on that car that Porsche doesn't mean that you are 
extremely rich. It just means that you've not managed your wealth well and you're going to have much, much lesser savings as compared to another person who's driving a Toyota. You know, there's this very interesting book called Profit First. And that book, this is like a book review inception kind of thing. But that book begins with this, that this lady, the CEO of a big firm, she came in a BMW, a very high-end BMW at that. And she came to the consultant, the author of the book. And she came to him, got out of the car in tears and says, I'm going bankrupt and I do not know what to do. Because her company was making the money, making the revenue, but never making the profits. And she had no clue what to do and yet she was driving that car, right? So very similarly, this, we are back to our current book now, Psychology of Money. He puts it in a very nice way. He says, less ego, more wealth. Saving money is the gap between your ego and your income. And wealth is what you don't see. So wealth is created by suppressing what you could buy today in order to have more stuff or more options in the future. No matter how much you earn, you will never build wealth unless you can put a lid on how much fun you can have with your money right now. I think if you want to put it in a very, very simple manner, think about it this way. If you had McDonald's every day of the week, maybe on the weekend you can treat yourself to a very, very nice meal at a very expensive restaurant or the other way around. If you start your week with a very expensive dinner and you blow your dinner budget for for the week on that one expensive dinner, you're forced for the rest of the week to eat McDonald's. Whereas if you budget yourself, if you curb your desires and you say save up for a month and you eat at a decent restaurant for every single day where you save a small amount of money, maybe at the end of the month you can eat at an even better restaurant than the one you spent your 80% of your weekly dining budget on. And there's no intention to spit on McDonald's. It's a lovely place to eat. Don't eat too much McDonald's. It might be very unhealthy for you. Although the fries are awesome. The fries are the best. There is nobody who even holds a candle to McDonald's fries. Totally. I think we have a mention of this in another episode. Do check it out. I'll post it somewhere on the top of your video. I think it was another one of our book reviews where we spoke about the founder. Yeah, somehow McDonald's keeps creeping in. I'm craving McDonald's now. Getting back to the psychology of money. I think the other very, very underrated thing that Housel talks about is this compounding effect. I remember, again, in one of our previous episodes, we spoke about the fact that a piece of paper folded 42 times in half reaches from the Earth to the Moon. That's just how compounding works. The Earth has had five cycles of ice ages. And you would say that, you know, for an ice age, the winters have to be more and more and more extreme. But that's actually not the case. An ice age doesn't require a harsh winter as much as it requires a cool summer. Because what that does is that that doesn't allow the ice from the previous winter to fully melt. And as the years go by, that keeps compounding and forming layers and layers and layers. And suddenly from a bit of ice that's left behind on a certain patch of land, the entire earth is covered in ice. That is how compounding works. There are numerous examples for compounding, right? It is by... In Einstein's words, it's supposed to be the eighth wonder of the world. It should be the first wonder of the world, in my opinion. And again, you know, it is something amazing how compounding can really change your life. And we have a whole episode on compounding. It's called Index Funds, where we tell you to just, you know, stay the course, let it compound, take that small return, stay the course, let it compound, take that small return, and stay the course. Perspective again, since we've been 
talking so much about Warren Buffett. His net worth at the time of Hustle writing this book was $84.5 billion. Of that $84.5 billion, $84.2 billion was accumulated after his 50th birthday. Buffett started investing, I think, when he was 10 years old. Yes, 10 years old. He had a net worth of $1 million when he was 30, which was which is $9.3 million adjusted for inflation. So just imagine that. One-off, if not the most successful investor in the world today, made most of his money after he turned 50 when he was investing from the age of 10. So 40 years he invested. So the author also talks about extreme events. He says that, you know, a major extreme event in your life can really set you up and get you going. And he calls it after tales you win. He says you can be wrong half the time and still make a fortune. So he gives the example of Nazi Germany. And he says that there was a lot of art that the Nazis stole. And after the whole World War II came to an end and all this art was out in the market, a lot of these art dealers used to just buy up entire warehouses, entire portfolios, entire collections of art. And amongst these collections, they used to find the Picassos, the Braques, the Cleese and the Matisses, which used to sell for massive, massive amounts of money. However, these were just the few in the many. The, you know, the diamonds that they found in this massive rough that they were purchasing. So they didn't have to be right all the time. In fact, they didn't even have to be right half the time. They had to be right maybe 2 or 3% of the time. And that 2 or 3% made up for all the rest that they bought. So it is very similar to if you watch Shark Tank or if you listen to any venture capitalist like Mark Cuban, right? These guys will buy... 30, 40, 50 companies and then they will aim for that one or two companies which give them exorbitant return. And that return just justifies buying all of these. All of this diversity for two companies just going gung-ho in their valuations. These events are also not just financial. You might actually be applying for a lot of jobs and that one job might actually give you an overwhelming amount of money compared to the rest of them. It happens. It happens in the tech world. This happens quite a bit. And sometimes people are at sixty, seventy thousand dollar jobs, and suddenly next year they apply to Amazon, and suddenly Amazon gives them one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. So this does happen, and this becomes like the tail event that really drives your life forward. Just speaking of venture capitalists, there is some numbers again that are given in the book. They say if uh, VCs make fifty investments, they expect at least half of them to fail, ten to do pretty well, and one or two to become bonanzas that drive one hundred percent of the fund's returns. So out of the 21,000 venture financings from 2004 to 2014, 65% lost money, 2.5% made 10x to 20x, 1% made more than 20x, and half a percent. So about 100 companies out of 21,000 earned 50x or more. And that's where the majority of the industry's returns came from. It's just fascinating. When you dive into the data and when you dive into the numbers and when all of these beliefs that we have, they actually come to light and they get justified from numbers, you know, it, it's put things in, into perspective and it puts your mind straight into perspective as well. So moving on, I think the next concept is something that a lot of us associate with money and a lot of us would like to have more of when we get our own money and that is freedom which says controlling your time is the highest dividend that money pays. And this is something I agree 100% with. I think this is the feature of this book. This is the highlight of this book. This is, this is what really drove the book home for me. 
because money buys you freedom and that is what money should be doing for you it should not be buying you more and more complexities in life and it's there's a lovely example given in the book there's this guitarist and this guitarist just signs a huge multi-million dollar deal with a record label company this reporter is interviewing this guitarist so the reporter asks the guitarist that how do you feel now that you have so much money he's like i didn't get so much money now i was 19 and i was working at a pizza hut next to my house and at this pizza hut i would make minimum wage i would make around 2000 a month my total expenses were around 1000 a month and i could save up 1000 every month so for 2 years i worked kept my life at 1000 a month and saved up 24000 at that moment i knew that for the next 2 years i can sustain myself and i can just practice my music here and there i kept getting gigs here and there i kept playing music and making a living eventually i got a big one and got my breakthrough the day that i had those 24000 in my bank account was the day i became rich it's not now now it's just some money in the bank but that day i get to practice my art and that was his freedom it is a very empowering message yes in the in hindsight you can come out and say whatever you want but if you think about it the only way somebody can do what they love is when they know that they don't have financial dependence on it that's very often what people used to define this whole concept of privilege and that's a very very controversial topic so let's not get into it but this story this example just reminded me of that you know people say that oh you're so privileged why because you have that financial backing that security net to do what you want to and that is freedom at the end of the day it says control over doing what you want when you want to with the people you want to is the broadest lifestyle variable that makes people happy so we can just say thanks to this ipso facto something equals to something equals to something money equals to freedom freedom equals to happiness money equals to happiness so money eventually can buy you happiness there have been numerous examples of my own where i have spoken to my friends right and the, some of them are doing very nice jobs some of them have very nice businesses so an example is this friend of mine in india and he runs a jewelry store so in the morning he gets up at 6 he gets to his jewelry store by 7 after getting ready he gets out at 8 pm at 9 pm he's back home then from 9 pm till 12 am that is the 3 hours he has with his family with his wife with his kids and that is the 3 hours he has of life and he sleeps and he wakes up at 6 am and gets back to his shop and he's loaded right he has enough money to sustain his lifestyle so i ask him that what if you just get rid of some of your property you put that money into a bond or a fixed deposit and that fixed deposit can literally run your life and you and your family can live exactly the same life you're living now and you can have the same life indefinitely the first question i get and it's not just him numerous people have the same response to knowing that they'll be financially free the response is then what will i do the question should not be what will i do the answer is you do whatever you want and that's what the focus should be on right you you can do whatever you want with this newly found freedom that you have if you don't like going to your shop don't go to your shop 
if you want to you know go out and play music like this guitarist wanted to go out and play music your financial freedom your financial life does not depend on it anymore which is so empowering when i think about it while again not everybody's crazy right so if you think of if you put yourself in their shoes then all that's there is this is my life and i might just miss out on my life which is going to the shop going to my clinic or going to the lab or you know doing x number of tedious things which you know eventually you start equating your life with your work and this allows you to detach i think what we often don't realize is that money is i think we have been trained so so much to keep you know a job and support your family and make sure you have a steady work life and this that and the other that we don't realize that this whole concept of enough you know you have enough to sustain yourself you know you have enough to lead a comfortable life so you have to be able to identify that enough and then be like okay this is what i want to do this is the level of freedom that i desire and so on and so forth so i think having that level of objectivity is something that we're not taught and i think Hazel's book is definitely going to lead to a lot more people at least trying to gain this objectivity because maybe a lot of them especially i know before i didn't read this book i didn't even think about money in this way so moving on i think he talks about one of the most amazing concepts and he says being reasonable is better than being rational when i first read that i was like aren't they the same thing isn't rationality and reason something that you just associate as being the same meaning but no that's not the case he says you're not a spreadsheet you're a person a screwed up emotional person this person with this emotion is going to lead you to being reasonable which is more realistic and you have some and you're doing things that you have a better chance of sticking with for a long time here he gives the example of julius wagner yorig who was a 19th century psychiatrist he won the nobel prize in medicine in 1927 and what he did was he used fever or he used malaria which induced fever to cure patients with severe neurosyphilis and this is because he realized that fevers are beneficial because our body uses fever as a natural way of combating viruses so then if you think about it in that sense the rational thing would be to welcome a fever when you have one so if fevers are beneficial why do we fight them why do we take a medicine the moment we have fever and it's just because fevers hurt and people don't want to hurt the rational thing would be that if you have a fever to let it do its thing to let your body fight the virus embrace the fever and be like okay there's something wrong with me and my body is using this fever to fight the virus but that's not how we humans work we need to take that medicine in order to make sure that fever abates i feel like the balance between logic and between emotion is a very important balance to have i do think the more you read and the more you know you get deeper and deeper into different concepts the more you educate yourself somewhere there starts being a clash of the two and somewhere within your emotions logic does get built in for example when i think about finance or when i think about stocks somewhere the whole emotion is driven by the logic which i don't know if it is a normal occurrence but it does happen to me so maybe that balance gets better when you listen to podcasts like ours or when you go out and read some new books and that logic can enhance the kind of emotions you can feel in certain manners and if there is a roller coaster happening 
on the financial front at least, like from our behalf, then it might be easier to bear that. You know, we might give you better seatbelts. So talking about roller coasters, the author talks about surprises and the author talks about unpredictability and the author talks about change. So the author says the future is unpredictable and readers should be prepared for surprises, both good and bad. And he recommends having a margin of safety and a long-term perspective. So how that works is that you need to realize that you're going to change. Your current scenarios are going to change. Your life is going to change. The needs are going to change. And when you build longer-term perspectives, then know that this change might be possible and build a margin of safety accordingly. Build yourself a safety net. For example, if you're investing a lot of money, you always have enough cash in hand that, you know, I might need it or there might be a big event coming, or there might be a big purchase. When we talk about how 50% of the US population cannot afford a $1,000 expense at any given time, and another 25% need a credit card to actually afford those $1,000, that is not building in the margin of safety. You know, so even though this sounds very nice and sounds very straightforward, people are not doing it. So that's an important part about the whole game. Dude, just the other day, I remember seeing some random video while scrolling through Instagram and one of these guys asked this woman that, hey, how much are you going to be earning with your first job? And she says around $100,000, $120,000. And he says, how much, do you, how much are you going to be saving by the time you retire? And mind you, this woman is in her 20s, so she's, her retirement is about 30, 35 years away. And she says $500,000. Imagine that. You're earning... A, upwards of $120,000 a year for 35 years and you expect to only have saved $500,000 by the time you retire. I think also the woman's 20. She's just getting into the workforce. She's still figuring out and 500000 might be a huge number to her. Maybe that was the perspective. At least she's thinking of saving, man. So many people don't even think about it. So many people, they get a paycheck, they spend the paycheck, they get a credit card, they spend the credit card, then their next paycheck just keeps funding their credit card. And they just end up in this loop. I was seeing the average credit card numbers. Gen X, so people who are before the millennials, they have an average of $9,000 on their credit cards in the US. Millennials have around $6,000 on their credit cards. And these, this is money that is due. It is not money that is available for them to use. And this is on average. Then Gen Z, the people who, are, who came after the millennial they have $4,500 on their credit cards. So this is becoming an active problem, right? People, people are not saving. They're just using their credit cards. And I think the Indian society does pretty well on this front. Since the very beginning, uh, at least in my family, the parents were very focused on save, save, save. Why don't you save? Why don't you save? You know, how much are you going to save? And even Bollywood is some of the movies, you know, you will always find the saving mentality is persistent. That might be a good thing about our society. I think, again, that has to do with the background that we've grown up in and things like that. I think after the whole partition drama and things like that, people started getting very majorly into this safe first mentality. And I think that's still influencing people to this day. Parents, grandparents, the first instinct is always save, save, save. Have a rainy day account. Have a what if something happens? What if you need this money? So there's always that instinct of saving first and spending second. There's actually a postscript chapter in the book. And in that chapter, the author talks about why America spends. And the author talks about how after the World War II, when the American soldiers came back, 
America was willing to provide debt at very, very low rates. And at that point, the disparity between the rich and the poor was getting pretty low. They were, they were really converging, right? And everybody wanted to live the same kind of lifestyle. So if a person, if a soldier came back and they saw that this rich person got this AC in their house, then the soldier would have incentive that I want the same lifestyle. So he would buy the same AC, right? Air conditioner. Everybody had an incentive to consume because debt was so cheap that practically the money was free. And then slowly and steadily, slowly and steadily, this wage gap started increasing because when you borrow something, you borrow it from your future and then you have to pay it back. Slowly and steadily, people still wanted to live the same lifestyle because you're not better than me and I would like to consume the same thing that you're consuming. However, the wages were not increasing. And America's mindset still has not changed. It is still spend forward. It is not save forward. So it's a very nicely written chapter with a lot of details in it. When you do read the book, which we still recommend, read the book. This has so much material which we are not covering here, but you will definitely enjoy it. We're giving you something that is maybe a little less than cliff notes, which is giving you what we have learned from it. And as the book also says that be aware when you're taking tips from others because you're all playing different games. So we have interpreted from the book what we would like to interpret. So there's always our biases, our knowledge, our readings that come into play. So definitely go check this book out and don't just go on our word for what we're saying. And talking about savings, he talks about how savings are the foundational blocks of your investment future, right? Because initially, let's say you make a 10% on your returns, then the amount you will be saving will be far greater than the amount you will get in your returns, at least for the next decade. So saving is essential and saving is essential to bolstering up your investment accounts or your investments in any kind of asset, whatever asset class you prefer. But save and saving becomes very, very important on that front. And as Vishruta has spoken about, all of us are playing different games. All of us have different goals, different mindsets, different kinds of lifestyles that we want to live. This book might just help you get there a little faster. It might help you change those perspectives altogether. And it might help you reconsider a lot of what you think about money, about life, about purchases, right? So do read this book. It is the highest of recommendations from me. And it, it was a very big surprise to me when I read this book. From both of us, from both of us, I don't think I can say that, yeah, just go read it. Don't think about it too much. Don't even listen to our episode, yeah. Just go and pick up the book and read it, form your own opinions, and then come back and listen to what we have to say because maybe then you understand the, the where we are coming from. You understand what we have read and how we have formed our opinions. I think my biggest takeaway from this book is that it just says treat money very normally. Be very, be thoughtful about it. Have your margins for error. Have your savings. Have your investments. Everything. Calculate everything that you're doing. There is obviously an element of luck. There is an element of chance. But that's just not in your hands. So focus on what you can control and try to control that to as large of an extent as you can and the rest will take care of itself. So wishing you all the luck and hope you can use money to gain control over your own time. So wishing you all the best of freedom. Thanks for joining us. We hope to continue to bring you some interesting news from around the world and keep you informed and keep you entertained and hope to see you again next time. Thank you. <laughs>